welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the March 9th, 2023 Thursday edition of the Fort Collins Coloradoan. My name is Gary Playtech. Today we will be reading the following main articles. World Marks Women's Day with Various Events by Kieran Giles and Mari Yamaguchi. Fact Check. What Do PSD Gender Identity Policies Say? by Kelly Lyle. Council Allows Group Home for Those with Dementia to Move Forward by Pat Ferrier. Ex-Navajo President Za Dies at 85 by Felicia Fonseca. And following up with miscellaneous articles. World Marks Women's Day with Various Events. Demonstrations Highlight Gaps in Gender Equality by Kieran Giles and Maria Maguchi. Associated Press, Madrid. Demonstrations, conferences, and artistic events around the world Wednesday marked International Women's Day, an annual observance established to recognize women and to demand equality for half of the planet's population. While activists in some parts of the planet noted advances, repression in countries such as Afghanistan and Iran, and the large numbers of women and girls who experience sexual assaults and domestic violence worldwide, highlighted the ongoing struggle to secure women's rights. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres noted this week that women's rights were abused, threatened, and violated around the world, and gender equality won't be achieved for 300 years given the current pace of change. Progress won over decades is vanishing because the patriarchy is fighting back, Guterres said. Even in countries that have pioneered advances for women, there have been recent setbacks for the feminist cause. This is the first International Women's Day since the U.S. Supreme Court ended the constitutional right to abortion last year, and many states adopted restrictions on abortion. The United Nations recognized International Women's Day in 1977, but the occasion has its roots in labor movements of the early 20th century. The day is commemorated in different ways and to varying degrees in different countries. Women gathered in Pakistan's major cities to march amid tight security. Organizers said the demonstrations were aimed at seeking rights guaranteed by the Constitution. Some conservative groups last year threatened to stop similar marches by force. Women's rights activists in Japan held a small rally to renew their demand for the government to allow married couples to keep using different surnames. Under the 1898 Civil Code, a couple must adopt the surname of the husband or wife at the time of marriage. The activist argued the law contributes to gender inequality because women experience strong pressure to take their husband's name. Surveys show majority support for both men and women keeping their own names. In the Philippines, hundreds of protesters from various women's groups rallied in Manila for higher wages and decent jobs. We are seeing the widest gender pay gap, protest leader Jones Salvador said. We are seeing an unprecedented increase in the number of women workers who are in informal work without any protection. The United Nations identified Afghanistan as the most repressive country in the world for women and girls since the Taliban takeover in 2021. The UN mission said Afghanistan's new rulers were imposing rules that leave most women and girls effectively trapped in their homes. They have banned girls' education beyond sixth grade and barred women from public spaces such as parks and gyms. Women must cover themselves from head to toe and are also barred from working at national and international non-governmental organizations. 
Russian President Vladimir Putin gave state awards to women during a Kremlin ceremony to mark International Women's Day, which is celebrated as a national holiday. He singled out a military paramedic and a journalist for fulfilling their duties in the area of the fighting in Ukraine. There are no fields and professions in our country where women haven't scored serious, remarkable results, Putin said. Your talents, knowledge, competence, responsibility, and determination contribute greatly to the development of our country. In Ireland, the government announced that it will hold a referendum in November to enshrine gender equality and remove discriminatory language in the country's constitution. Prime Minister Leo Varadkar said people will be asked to vote on a series of amendments to the constitution, including removing an outmoded reference to women's place being in the home. The Constitution, which was drawn up in 1937, currently states that the state shall endeavor to ensure that mothers shall not be obliged by economic necessity to engage in labor to the neglect of their duties in the home. In Spain, more than one million people were expected to attend evening demonstrations in Madrid, Barcelona, and other cities. Big rallies were also organized in many other cities around the world, while in some countries only minor events were held. Although Spain has for years produced one of the world's biggest turnouts on March 8th, this year's marches are marked by a division within its own left-wing government over a sexual liberty law that has inadvertently led to the reduction of sentences for hundreds of sexual offenders. Activists and left-wing governments in Spain have advanced women's rights in areas such as abortion access, menstrual leave, and parental leave over the past two decades. Many European countries also have made strides toward gender equity. Hundreds of Kosovar Albanian women held a protest in its capital against domestic violence, throwing black and red smoke bombs at the police headquarters. We march, do not celebrate, was their main slogan. The marchers accused police, the prosecutor's office, and the courts of gender discrimination. Fact Check What do PSD Gender Identity Policies Say? By Kelly Lyle Puder School District is the latest, but certainly not the first, public school district to be thrust into the national spotlight for how it handles students who ask to be identified by a name or pronoun that differs from what their parents prefer or was assigned to the student at birth. Fox News, the Daily Mail, and other outlets claim that emails between an assistant principal seeking district guidance on which pronouns to use while addressing an elementary school student show secret plans to defy parents' wishes on transitioning their child's gender. The parents, the report said, had told school staff directly not to call the student by those pronouns. PSD said it was honest with the parents about how the student was being addressed. The emails were obtained through a public records request and shared on Twitter by a Colorado woman using the handle Erin for Parents and retweeted with comment by Nicole Solis, a Rhode Island parent activist. Emails reveal at Pooter Schools started secretly transitioning K-5 students last year by using students' preferred names and pronouns at school, but legal names with parents, Solis tweeted. However, the district's secretive process is spelled out in publicly available policies that include avenues for parents to access information about student-led discussions about how they are referred to at PSD schools. What the emails reveal is that PSD was following its own policies and procedures, as well as those of several other school districts in Colorado and across the country. 
The policies are in line with guidelines issued by the U.S. Department of Education to ensure schools and districts are not in violation of federal Title IX laws preventing discrimination at educational institutions receiving federal funds. What is PSD's policy on addressing gender identity? Those policies clearly state that students can choose to be called by a different name or pronoun by teachers, staff, classmates, and other school personnel than what is used in official communications with parents or guardians. Per district policies, gender support offered by PSD staff is ultimately student-driven. Parents can request that school staff use a gender-affirming name or pronoun other than those requested by the student, but school staff cannot accommodate that request because it would constitute harassment of your students, read an FAQ on gender support on the PSD website. PSD policy prohibits harassment based on gender identity or gender expression, which includes deliberately misusing a transgender student's name or gender-related pronoun. Colorado law prohibits unlawful harassment, which includes deliberately misusing an individual's name or gender-related pronoun. School staff cannot and will not harass your student, and therefore they will use your student's gender-affirming name and pronoun at school. No distinction is made based on a student's age or grade. We are following state laws, we are following federal laws, and we're following our own policies, PSD Board of Education member Kristen Draper said during a meeting Tuesday night. And I just want to say that I support the staff and the students that are doing the right thing. PSD policy prohibits school staff from lying about a student's gender identity if asked by a parent or guardian and allows parents or guardians to request a copy of a student's individual gender support form if their student has one. Only a student can complete an individual gender support form, not a parent or guardian. PSD does not provide other services to transgender or non-binary students, such as legal name changes or hormone therapy, which requires a medical doctor. The emails from March 2022 that were obtained through a November 2022 open records request show that PSD staff followed its policies, as written, Madeline Noblet, the district's chief information officer, wrote in an email. In one of those emails, the parents asked if the child was using a preferred name or pronoun at school, and the school referred affirmatively, she wrote. No staff lied to or deceived parents, Noblet continued. It is important to point out that individuals posting about this on social media and on various media platforms, and those reposting or retweeting those individuals' posts, have selectively shared a handful of emails and unverified or incomplete information as fact. We encourage our community to consider the source and accuracy of information that they encounter on any platform. Kurt Kastein, a former Fort Collins City Council member, acknowledged that school officials followed PSD policies in the email exchange, but asked the Board of Education at its meeting Tuesday night to reconsider that policy. I think the policy is wrong, Kastein said. I would ask that the Board and Administration rethink that policy. What are the policies in other school districts? The PSD policy in question is consistent with those of several other school districts in the state, including Thompson, Boulder Valley, Adams 12, and Denver Public School Districts, and many other public school districts across the country. Transgender students and non-binary students have the right to be addressed by the name and pronoun they consistently identify with at school, reads the policy of Denver Public Schools, the state's largest district with more than 87,000 students. 
Transgender and non-binary students do not need to be out at home in order to be addressed by their self-identified names and pronouns. Transgender and non-binary and gender non-conforming students do not need parent permission to change their name or pronoun in Infinite Campus or other DPS systems. The policy in the Jefferson County School District, the second largest in Colorado with more than 77,000 students, has different guidelines for elementary school students and those in secondary schools. In secondary schools, grades 6 through 12, the guidelines note that in some cases, notifying parents, guardians, carries risks for the students, such as being kicked out of the home. School staff, it reads, should work closely with the student to assess the degree that involving the parent or guardian will have on the health, well-being, and safety of the student. At the elementary school level, grades kindergarten through fifth, if school staff believe that a gender identity or expression issues is presenting itself and creating difficulty for the child at school, approaching parents, guardians about the issue is appropriate, the policy reads. PSD's policy isn't unusual or unique in drawing protests from those against public school districts using students' preferred pronouns without their parents' direct consent. Fox News reported on a similar issue in a Kansas school district last week and on a Pennsylvania school district in January. Death threats were made against school board members and the superintendent of a Wisconsin school district following published reports in March 2022 on its policies, Wisconsin Public Radio reported. Thompson School District was the subject of a published report about its gender identity policy by conservative activist publication Breitbart in August. PSD has guidelines, processes, and legal requirements to support multiple student groups, including but not limited to students with disabilities, students with medical needs, and students who identify with the LGBTQIA community, Noblet wrote. It is the legal responsibility of each school and district to ensure that transgender and non-binary students have access to an educational environment, school, athletics, extracurriculars, etc., that is free from discrimination based on their gender identity or gender expression. PSD is committed to ensuring that all students, including LGBTQIA students, have a safe and welcoming environment that is free from discrimination based on race, religion, sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression. Council allows group home for those with dementia to move forward by Pat Ferrier. A group home for adults suffering from dementia will be allowed in a South Fort Collins neighborhood after City Council early Wednesday morning denied two appeals of the City Planning and Zoning Commission's affirming decision. The Fort Collins Planning and Zoning Commission on December 15th approved homeowners Eric Schenk and Ziema Diaz's proposal for a group home for up to 10 residents at 636 Castle Ridge Court. Following the approval, Dr. Steve Sunderman filed an appeal December 21st. Kurt Johnson and 11 neighbors filed a separate appeal December 28th. Both appeals claimed the commission failed to properly interpret the city's land use code. Sunderman's appeal also contended the commission was biased against the property's neighbors, failed to conduct a fair hearing, and ignored previously established rules of procedure. He said city staff and planning and zoning chairman David Katz failed to follow required procedures, broke promises to comply with required procedures and meetings, and repeatedly tried to silence opponents. 
Neighbors repeatedly argued the group home was not compatible with their single-family neighborhood and that their private road was too narrow to accommodate the associated increase in traffic and on-street parking. As the clock neared 1 a.m. on Wednesday, City Council unanimously denied the two appeals after nearly three hours of testimony and deliberation. The issue of neighborhood compatibility is subjective, Mayor Jenny Arndt said, but I find the work by the Planning and Zoning Commission to be within code and the conditions were reasonable, adding more conditions including restricting delivery hours and requiring visitors and service providers to park on one side of the street would create double standards, she said, and were unnecessary. I don't see adding conditions, but I hope the applicant is a considerate neighbor and would work on those things anyway, Council Member Shirley Peel said. Council Member Tricia Kananico added, Nothing I've read has convinced me there was not a fair hearing. Sunderman said Wednesday the Council circled the wagons around what he called planning and zoning's predetermined outcome. They did everything they could to prevent our neighborhood from protecting itself, he said. They're ending up protecting a couple that is out to make massive amounts of money by using a protected class. In a statement, Sunderman said the commission was motivated by ideology rather than by respect to zoning rules, codes, covenants, or fairness to the community. The decision was clearly predetermined. I believe the city council did not uphold its duty to Fort Collins. Johnson acknowledged the city's land use code allows group homes in the neighborhood, but asked council to apply conditions necessary to ensure neighborhood compatibility and implement a staged approach that would allow the group home to open with fewer residents. If, after two years, the home could prove compatibility with the neighborhood, it could add additional residents. It is far too risky to approve 10 residents without hard data when it's in a challenging location like this, Johnson said. The Commission's December approval for a scaled-down facility came several months after it unanimously denied a proposal for larger 16-person group home, citing lack of parking in the residential neighborhood. Michelle Pinkowski, Schenk, and Diaz's attorney said the project would not be financially viable with fewer than 10 residents. The group home would be the only small memory care home in Fort Collins, would be licensed by the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, and would provide a home-like setting for people with dementia and Alzheimer's, Pinkowski said. We don't want to lose sight. That is the population we are talking about. Following the decision, Schenck said the process was important, and they recognize that our community members are good people that, like us, have organized their lives toward helping others. We also recognize that misinformation and fear of the unknown can stir people to say and act in ways that is not representative of their best selves. We look forward to getting to know the members of our community for who they really are. He thanked the Council, Commission, and City staff for evaluating the appeals in the context of federal civil rights law and for forward-thinking public policies regarding the rights of all people to live in residential communities of their choice. Now, we intend to redouble our focus on helping people with memory care challenges and serving as an asset to Northern Colorado. What comes next? Council's decision can be appealed to Colorado's 8th Judicial District Court, and Sunderman did not rule that out. I haven't decided yet, nor have the neighbors. If neighbors pursue further action, recoverable damages could be in the millions, he said, based on the decreased value of our homes and the decreased appeal of the neighborhood. They are destroying the neighborhood. Ex-Navajo President Za dies at 85. Former leader guided by love for people, family. 
by Felicia Fonseca, Associated Press, Flagstaff, Arizona. Peterson Zah, a monumental Navajo Nation leader who guided the tribe through a politically tumultuous era and worked tirelessly to correct wrongdoings against Native Americans, has died. Zah died late Tuesday at a hospital in Fort Defiance, Arizona, after a lengthy illness, Navajo President Boo Nigren's office said. He was 85. Zah was the first president elected on the Navajo Nation, the largest tribal reservation in the U.S., in 1990 after the government was restructured into three branches to prevent power from being concentrated in the chairman's office. At the time, the tribe was reeling from a deadly riot incited by Zah's political rival, former chairman Peter MacDonald, a year earlier. Zah vowed to rebuild the tribe and to support family and education, speaking with people in ways that imparted mutual respect, said his longtime friend Eric Eberhard. Zah was as comfortable putting on dress clothes to represent Navajos in D.C. as he was driving his old pickup truck around the reservation and sitting on the ground, listening to people who were struggling, he said. People trusted him. They knew he was honest, Eberhard said Tuesday. Aspiring politicians on and off the Navajo Nation sought Zah's advice and endorsement. He rode with Hillary Clinton in the Navajo Nation parade a month before Bill Clinton was elected president. Zah later campaigned for Hillary Clinton in her bid for the presidency. He recorded countless campaign advertisements over the years in the Navajo language that aired on the radio, mostly siding with Democrats. But he made friends with Republicans, too, including the late Arizona U.S. Senator John McCain, whom he endorsed in the 2000 presidential election as someone who could work across the aisle. Zah was born in December 1937 in remote Low Mountain, a section of the reservation embroiled in a decades-long land dispute with the neighboring Hopi tribe that resulted in the relocation of thousands of Navajos and hundreds of Hopis. He attended boarding school, graduated from the Phoenix Indian School, and rejected notions that he wasn't suited for college, Eberhard said. Zah attended community college, then Arizona State University on a basketball scholarship where he earned a degree in education. He went on to teach carpentry on the reservation and other vocational skills. He later co-founded a federally funded legal advocacy organization that served Navajos, Hopis, and Apaches that still exists today. Despite never having held an elected position, Zah captured the tribal chairman's post in 1982, campaigning in a white, battered 1950s international pickup that he fixed up himself, drove for decades, and that became a symbol of his low-key style, Eberhard said. Under Zah's leadership, the tribe established a now multi-billion dollar permanent fund in 1985 after winning a court battle with Kerr McGee that found the tribe had authority to tax companies that extract minerals from the 27,000 square mile reservation. All coal, pipeline, oil and gas leases were renegotiated, which increased payments to the tribe. A portion of that money is added annually to the permanent fund. Zah sometimes was referred to as the Native American Robert Kennedy because of his charisma, ideas, and ability to get things done, including lobbying federal officials to ensure Native Americans could use peyote as a religious sacrament, his longtime friend Charles Wilkinson said last year. Zah also worked to ensure Native Americans were reflected in federal environmental laws like the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act. Zah told the Associated Press in January 2022 that respecting people's differences was key to maintaining a sense of beauty in life and improving the world for future generations. 
He struggled to name the thing he's most proud of after receiving a Lifetime Achievement Award from a Flagstaff, Arizona-based environmental group. It's hard for me to prioritize in that order, he said. It's something I enjoy doing all my life. People have passion, we're born with that, plus a purpose in life. Zoss said he could not have done the work alone and credited team efforts that always include his wife Rosalind. Throughout his life, he never claimed to be an extraordinary Navajo, just a Navajo with extraordinary experiences. That resonated with students at Arizona State University, where Zoss served as the Native American liaison to the school's president for 15 years, boosting the number of Native students and the number of Native graduates. Za also pushed colleges and universities to accept Navajo students, regardless of whether they graduated in the Arizona, New Mexico, or Utah portion of the reservation at in-state tuition rates. It's thousands upon thousands of Native students, not only from Navajo, who he encouraged to stay in school, seek advanced degrees, and was available to counsel when they hit the rough spots, said Eberhard, who worked with Za while he was chairman. He completely altered the way Arizona State University works with Native students. Current Navajo President Boo Nigren said he first interacted with Zah as a student at ASU, struck by Zah's speech that he described as quiet and structured but powerful and vivid. To see him on the ASU campus brought a lot of inspiration to myself, he said. I probably wouldn't have gone into construction management if he wasn't so influential at ASU. Attacks, new investigations, test FBI, pressures mounting on director likely to increase. By Eric Tucker and Del Quinton Wilbur, Associated Press, Washington. Three days after federal agents searched former President Donald Trump's Florida home for classified documents, FBI Director Christopher Wray emailed his workforce, urging them to tune out criticism from those who don't know what we know and don't see what we see. The work was done by the book, the director wrote in his August 11th email. We don't cut corners, we don't play favorites. The internal message was an acknowledgement of the unprecedented nature of the search and the subsequent pummeling the Bureau had been receiving from Trump and his supporters. It also was a recognition that the FBI had been navigating a moment so fraught that the normally taciturn Ray felt compelled to address employees about the ramifications of the investigation. The pressures on Ray and the FBI have grown since then and are only likely to intensify. In its long history, the FBI has rarely been at the center of so many politically sensitive investigations. Agents are simultaneously examining the retention of classified documents by Trump and President Joe Biden, and they're scrutinizing the efforts by Trump and his allies to overturn the 2020 election ahead of the January 6, 2021 storming of the U.S. Capitol. The probes, overseen by Justice Department special counsels, are unfolding in a hyper-partisan environment as the 2024 presidential election nears and as Congress launches its own investigations of the FBI. All the while, the Bureau has been subjected to regular attacks from Trump, his supporters, and influential right-wing pundits, with the former president saying FBI misfits are less credible than Russian President Vladimir Putin. In an interview with the Associated Press this week, Ray acknowledged the FBI was enduring tough times, but he downplayed the impact the noise had on day-to-day -day work, insisting the opinions he most valued were those of the people we do the work for and those we do the work with. Adding to the tension, Republicans are using their newly minted House majority to investigate the investigators, accusing the FBI of abuses ranging from unfairly targeting Trump to suppressing free speech.
They've highlighted disputed, uncorroborated whistleblower complaints against supervisors that the FBI, for privacy reasons, says it's constrained from fully responding to. Representative Jim Jordan, Republican, Ohio, a Ray critic and chair of the House Judiciary Committee, told the AP last week he supported rank-and-file agents but was concerned about the leadership. For Ray, the turbulence is more a continuation of a recent trend than something new. He was appointed by Trump in 2017 after the chaotic firing of his predecessor, James Comey, and as the FBI investigated ties between Russia and Trump's 2016 campaign. Furious over that probe, Trump lashed out at Ray for the remainder of his term and openly flirted with firing him. The director fastidiously ignored the verbal assaults, adhering to a keep calm and tackle hard mantra that he has repeatedly conveyed to agents, but that can seem incongruous with a climate that is decidedly not calm. His approach did not change as the Bureau initiated investigations involving the current and former presidents. We are not well served by wading into the fray, taking the bait, and responding to every breathless allegation, Ray told the AP. So we will continue to push back and correct the record when we appropriately can. But as long as I'm director, we're going to follow the FBI's long history and tradition of letting our work do the talking. The partisan environment magnifies self-inflicted wounds that have damaged the FBI's credibility, making it more difficult to counter conspiracy theories and questionable narratives. The inherent tripwires of politically explosive investigations were manifest last summer, when some in the FBI resisted the idea of serving a search warrant at Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate, believing a more cautious approach was better, and that the Trump team was entitled to more time to cooperate, according to a person with knowledge of the talks. The Washington Post earlier reported the disagreements. In the days after the search, as U.S. officials warned of an alarming spike in threats against the FBI, a 42-year-old Trump supporter attacked the FBI's Cincinnati field office. No FBI employees were harmed, but police killed the gunman. For his part, Ray said he tries to communicate as much as he can about the FBI's work, including about the Chinese espionage threat or other priorities, but no matter how much he does so, the focus is on the manufactured controversies of the day, or the one or two cases that get all the attention. He believes a key part of his job is to step up outreach to his 38,000-member workforce. Besides the message after the Mar-a-Lago search, he held an employee town hall in December, taking questions about public perception of the FBI, agent safety, and allegations of politicization. He also frequently visits the Bureau's 56 field offices to speak to agents and local law enforcement. At the end of the day, he said of the workforce, they're not doing it to attract popularity contests on social media or to win the adoration of pundits. U.S. to relax COVID rules for travelers from China comes as cases declining in Asian nation by Amer Madani and Zeke Miller, Associated Press, Washington. The Biden administration is preparing to relax COVID-19 testing restrictions for travelers from China as soon as Friday, according to two people familiar with the decision. The people, who were not authorized to comment publicly and spoke on the condition of anonymity, said the administration has decided to roll back the testing requirements, as cases, hospitalizations, and deaths are declining in China, and the U.S. has gathered better information about the surge. The restrictions were put in place on December 28th and took effect on January 5th amid a surge in infections in China after the nation's sharply eased pandemic restrictions and as U.S. health officials expressed concerns that their Chinese counterparts 
were not being truthful to the world about the true number of infections and deaths. The Washington Post was first to report on Tuesday about the expected administration move. At the time, U.S. officials also said the restriction was necessary to protect U.S. citizens and communities because there was a lack of transparency from the Chinese government about the size of the surge or the variants that were circulating within China. As part of its response, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention earlier this year expanded genomic surveillance at several U.S. airports, collecting voluntary samples from passengers aboard hundreds of weekly flights from China and the testing of wastewater aboard airplanes. The traveler-based genomic surveillance program will continue to monitor travelers from China and more than 30 other countries. The rules imposed in January require travelers to the U.S. from China, Hong Kong, and Macau to take a COVID-19 test no more than two days before travel and provide a negative test before boarding their flight. The testing applies to anyone two years and older, including U.S. citizens. It also applied to people traveling from China via a third country and to people connecting through the U.S. as they go on to other destinations. Anyone testing positive more than 10 days before the flight can provide documentation showing they've recovered from COVID-19 instead of a negative test result. It has been left to the airlines to confirm negative tests and documentation of recovery before passengers board. Earlier Tuesday, Chinese Foreign Minister Qin Gang warned that Beijing and Washington were headed for conflict and confrontation if the U.S. doesn't change course. Qin's comments came a day after Xi, in an unusually pointed speech, said that Western countries led by the United States have implemented all-round containment, encirclement, and suppression of China. White House officials sought to downplay the hot rhetoric from Beijing. There is no change to the United States posture when it comes to this bilateral relationship, White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said. The president believes those tensions obviously have to be recognized, but can be worked through. Powell, No Decision on Fed's Next Move on Rates, by Christopher Rugeber, Associated Press, Washington. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell stressed Wednesday that the central bank's policymakers have yet to decide how large an interest rate hike to impose at its next meeting in two weeks in its drive to defeat high inflation. If, and I stress that no decision has been made on this, if the totality of the data were to indicate that faster tightening is warranted, we would be prepared to increase the pace of rate hikes, Powell said on his second day of semiannual testimony to Congress. The Fed chair had made a similar comment Tuesday to a Senate panel, but had not included the caveat that no decision has been made. Some economists and Wall Street traders had interpreted those remarks as a signal that the Fed would raise its benchmark rate by a substantial half point at its March 21st to 22nd meeting. As a result, stock prices tumbled Tuesday, and some bond yields rose as markets anticipated a faster pace of rate hikes. When the Fed raises its key short-term rate, it typically leads to more expensive mortgages, auto loans, credit card lending, and business loans. Higher rates can discourage consumers from spending and thereby cool the economy and inflation. But they also raise the risk that the economy will fall into a recession. Powell's more nuanced remarks Wednesday appeared to be an effort to quell any assumption that the Fed has already decided to raise rates more aggressively, based on a recent string of data that pointed to strong economic growth and still high inflation. At its meeting in early February, the Fed slowed its pace of hikes, boosting its key rate by just a quarter point, after a half-point increase in December and three-quarters of a point four times before that.
Powell's comments Tuesday appeared to imply that the Fed would return to larger rate hikes at its next meeting, March 21st to 22nd. But under questioning Wednesday from Representative Patrick McHenry, the Republican chairman of the House Financial Services Committee, Powell said the Fed would closely scrutinize data on hiring, retail sales, and inflation that will be released next week before settling on its next interest rate moves. We're not on a preset path, and we will be guided by the incoming data, Powell said. We have not made any decision about the March meeting. Krishna Guha, an analyst at Evercore ISI, an investment bank, said he inferred from Powell's remarks Wednesday that either a half-point or a quarter-point hike is possible when the Fed next meets in two weeks. But Guha suggested that after January's strong economic data, the economy would likely have to show signs that it was cooling sharply for the Fed to hike by only a quarter point. Though Powell left the door open Wednesday to only a quarter point hike this month, he reiterated his comments from Tuesday that signaled that the Fed will ultimately raise its key rate higher than it had forecast in December. The data we've seen so far this year, he said Wednesday, suggests that the ultimate level of rates will need to be higher. In his testimony Wednesday, Powell repeated his warnings that Congress should raise the nation's borrowing limit or debt ceiling to avoid any chance that the government would default on its debts for the first time. Congress to overrule D.C. Senate votes to block crime laws as Biden says he will sign. By Mary Claire Jalanik and Ashraf Khalil, Associated Press, Washington. The Senate voted Wednesday to block new District of Columbia crime laws and overrule the city government as lawmakers in both parties have expressed concern about rising violent crime rates in cities nationwide. President Joe Biden said last week that he will sign the Republican resolution, which passed the Senate 81 to 14, after passing the House last month. It would mark the first time in more than three decades that Congress has nullified the capital city's laws through the disapproval process and a shift in the long-held Democratic position that the federal government should let D.C. govern itself. Biden, who is set to announce a re-election campaign in the coming months, has been under increasing pressure on the issue from Republicans who have made reducing crime a political priority. In D.C., homicides in the city had risen for four years straight before they dropped around 10 percent in 2022. The 2021 murder count of 227 was the highest since 2003. We are the greatest superpower nation in history, Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell said on the Senate floor Wednesday morning. This is our capital city, but local politicians have let its streets become a danger and an embarrassment. Eleanor Holmes Norton, the district's non-voting delegate in the House, pushed back on the effort, speaking at a hands-off D.C. rally ahead of the vote. There are no exceptions and there is no middle ground around D.C.'s right to self-government, Norton said. The overhaul of D.C.'s criminal code was approved late last year by the City Council after years of failed attempts. It would redefine crimes, change criminal justice policies, and rework how sentences should be handed down after convictions. It would also do away with mandatory minimum sentences for many crimes and reduce the maximum penalties for burglary, carjacking, and robbery. Mayor Muriel Bowser vetoed the overhaul in January, writing in a letter that she had very significant concerns about some of the bill's proposals. She later suggested changes after the council overrode her veto. Senate Democrats supporting the measure have cited Bowser's veto, arguing that it needs another look. What we've heard from the mayor of D.C. is there is more work to be done, said Michigan Senator Debbie Stabenow.
Report, boy won't be charged in shooting. Virginia prosecutor has yet to decide on adults. By Denise Lavoie and Ben Finley, Associated Press, Richmond, Virginia. Authorities in the Virginia city where a six-year-old shot and wounded his teacher will not seek criminal charges against the child, the local prosecutor told NBC News Wednesday, in a decision that was anticipated by legal experts. But Newport News Commonwealth's attorney Howard Gwynn said his office has yet to decide if any adults will be held criminally accountable. Newport News police have said that the boy used his mother's 9mm handgun in the January 6th shooting at Richneck Elementary School. A lawyer for his child's mother has previously stated that the weapon, which was legally purchased, was secured on a high closet shelf and had a lock on it. Gwen did not immediately respond to two phone messages and two emails from the Associated Press seeking comment. He told NBC that the prospect that a six-year-old can stand trial is problematic because he wouldn't have the competency to understand the legal system and what a charge means. Gwen told the news outlet that his office is still focusing on others besides the child. Once we analyze all the facts, we will charge any person or persons that we believe we can prove beyond a reasonable doubt committed a crime, he said. The decision did not come as a surprise. Even though it is possible under Virginia law to criminally charge a six-year-old child, legal experts said it would be highly unlikely that a prosecutor would even try. A common law doctrine known as the infancy defense holds that children under seven cannot be prosecuted for a crime because they are too young to be capable of forming criminal intent. A judge also would have to find that the child was competent to stand trial, meaning that he could understand the legal proceedings and assist attorneys defending him. You have to be able to show that they understand the seriousness of it, planned it, and executed it, Julie McConnell, a law professor at the University of Richmond, told the AP. It would be very hard to prove that a six-year-old could understand that what he did could have permanent consequences, McConnell said. She added, The question is not how do we hold the child accountable. The question is how do we hold ourselves accountable as a society? How do we address the fact that it is so easy for children to get guns in the first place? Newport News police turned over their investigation to Gwynn's office last month. Police Chief Steve Drew said in February that he understands that people would like to have a case open and shut. That's just not what we have here. Drew described a complicated investigation that involved coordinating interviews with first graders, which required permission from their parents as well as the expertise of a child psychologist. Quinn told the AP last month that the city's detectives handed over three binders of information to his office. It's a lot of information, and we're going to carefully review it as we do in every case, Gwynn said in February. The decision to not charge the child is the latest development from the shooting, which sent shockwaves through the shipbuilding city of about 185,000 people near the Chesapeake Bay. The six-year-old boy, who has not been identified, shot first-grade teacher Abby Zwerner while she was teaching inside her classroom. The police chief has repeatedly characterized the shooting as intentional. Drew said there was no warning and no struggle before the child pointed the gun at Zwerner and fired one round, striking her in the hand and chest. Zwerner, 25, hustled her students out of the classroom before being rushed to the hospital, where she stayed for nearly two weeks before she was released to continue recovering at home. An attorney for the six-year-old's family, James Ellenson, told the AP in January that the gun the boy used was secured in his mother's closet on a shelf well over six feet high and had a trigger lock that required a key. 
The family statement in the wake of the shooting also said that the boy has an acute disability and was under a care plan that included his mother or father attending school with him and accompanying him to class every day. The week of the shooting was the first when a parent was not in class with him, the family said. The family said in the days after the shooting that the child was placed under hospital care and was receiving the treatment he needs. Zwerner's attorney, Diane Toscano, told reporters in January that concerned staff at Richneck Elementary School had warned administrators three times that the six-year-old had a gun and was threatening other students in the hours before Zwerner was shot. Toscano said the administration was paralyzed by apathy and didn't call police, remove the boy from class, or lock down the school. In early February, Toscano filed a legal notice informing Newport News Public Schools of Zwerner's intent to sue, laying out even more allegations. They included claims that the same boy who shot Zwerner had constantly cursed at staff and teachers, tried to whip students with his belt, and once choked another teacher until she couldn't breathe. Two days before the shooting, the boy allegedly slammed Zwerner's cell phone and broke it, according to the claim notice. He was given a one-day suspension, the notice says. But when he returned to Zwerner's class the following day, he pulled a 9mm handgun out of his pocket and shot her while she sat at a reading table, the notice says. Global mystery surrounds Nord Stream explosions. Investigations into blasts in Baltic Sea continue. By Matthew Lee, Associated Press, Washington. It's a major international mystery with global consequences. Who was behind the explosions that damaged the Nord Stream gas pipelines last year in the Baltic Sea? The answer has broad implications for European energy security, but could also threaten Western unity over backing Ukraine in defending itself from Russia's invasion. Or it might shatter Russian and Chinese attempts to fix the blame on a hypocritical West. Yet, nearly six months after the sabotage on the Russia-to-Germany pipelines, there is no accepted explanation. And a series of unconfirmed reports variously accusing Russia, the United States, and Ukraine are filling an information vacuum as investigations into the blasts continue. A look at what's known about the explosions. What are the Nord Stream pipelines? The pipelines, known as Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2, are majority owned by Russia's state-run energy giant Gazprom and used to transport natural gas from Russia to Europe under the Baltic to their termini in Germany. Nord Stream 1 was completed and came online in 2011. Nord Stream 2 was not finished until the fall of 2021, but never became operational due to the launch of Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. Why are they controversial? Both pipelines bypass existing routes that go through Ukraine, meaning not only that Ukraine loses income from transit fees, but is unable to directly use the gas they carry. Of perhaps greater concern to the West, the pipelines were seen as a move by Russia to gain further, if not almost complete, control over Europe's energy supplies. Many in the West fear that Russia will use energy as a political weapon against European countries, as it has done in the past with former Soviet states. Despite those concerns and over the objections of the Obama, Trump, and Biden administrations, the German government under former Chancellor Angela Merkel moved ahead with the construction of the Nord Stream 2 project. The Biden administration waived sanctions against German entities involved in Nord Stream 2 after securing a pledge from Germany that it would allow back flows of gas into Ukraine and would act to shut the pipeline down should Russia try to use it to force political concessions. After Russia's February 24, 2022 invasion of Ukraine, Germany withdrew permission for Nord Stream 2, which had not yet come online.
What happened to the pipelines? First, Gazprom halted gas flows through Nord Stream 1 on September 2, 2022, citing issues related to European sanctions imposed against Russia over the war in Ukraine. Three weeks later, both Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 were hit by explosions that rendered them inoperable and caused significant leaks of gas that was idle in the pipelines. Some have said the blasts caused the worst release of methane in history, although the full extent of the environmental damage remains unclear. The depth of the pipeline and the complexity of using underwater explosives lent credence to the idea that only a state actor with the expertise to handle such an operation could be responsible. But no one claimed responsibility. In the immediate aftermath of the explosions, U.S. officials suggested Russia may have been to blame, while Russia accused the United States and Britain of being behind them. Investigations by European nations, including Denmark, through whose waters the pipeline travels, and Germany have yet to yield conclusive results. What theories have been reported? After months of few developments in the probes, American investigative journalist Seymour Hirsch, known for past exposés of U.S. government malfeasance, self-published a lengthy report in February alleging that President Joe Biden had ordered the sabotage, which Hirsch said was carried out by the CIA with Norwegian assistance. That report, based on a single unidentified source, has been flatly denied by the White House, the CIA, and the State Department, and no other news organization has been able to corroborate it. Russia, followed by China, however, leaped on Hirsch's reporting, saying it was grounds for a new and impartial investigation conducted by the United Nations. On Tuesday, though, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and German media published stories citing U.S. and other officials as saying there was evidence Ukraine, or at least Ukrainians, may have been responsible. The Ukrainian government has denied involvement. Germany's Dietzeit newspaper and German public broadcasters ARD and SWR reported that investigators believed that five men and a woman used a yacht hired by a Ukrainian-owned company in Poland to carry out the attack. German federal prosecutors confirmed that a boat was searched in January, but have not confirmed the reported findings. What are the consequences for those found responsible? The implications of a determination that Ukraine was behind the explosions are not entirely clear. It's unlikely it would result in an immediate loss of Western support for Ukraine in the war, but it might dampen enthusiasm for future assistance if it was found out that Ukraine or its agents carried out such an operation in European waters. A determination that the United States, or a proxy, was responsible would give Russia and China additional leverage to go after the U.S. and its allies as hypocrites in their demands for the rule of law, sovereignty, and territorial integrity to be respected. A finding that Russia was behind the explosions would lend weight to Western claims that Moscow is in flagrant breach of international law and willing to use energy as a weapon against Europe. There is no indication of when the European investigations will be complete and it seems improbable, given the animosity and mistrust surrounding the Ukraine conflict, that its findings will be universally accepted. In brief, Wall Street steadies itself a day after its steep tumble. Stocks steadied on Wall Street Wednesday and closed with a mixed finish, a day after worries about interest rates sent them to one of their worst tumbles of the year. The S&P 500 rose 5.64 points, or 0.1%, to 3,992.01, the Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 58.06, or 0.2%, to 32,798.4, while the NASDAQ Composite added 45.67, or 0.4%, to 
to 11,576. The Russell 2000 index of smaller companies rose 0.75 points, or less than 0.1%, to 1,879.48. The yield on the 10-year Treasury, which helps set rates for mortgages and other important loans, ticked up to 3.98% from 3.97% late Tuesday. Hong Kong's Cathay Pacific posts $834 million loss for 2022. Cathay Pacific Airways Limited said it was ready to rebuild as Hong Kong opened up to global visitors despite reporting wider losses in 2022. The airline reported an annual loss of $834.4 million for the year ending December 31st, an 18.5% increase in losses from 2021 amid strict entry restrictions into the city during the first half of 2022. However, Cathay saw revenue grow 12% to $6.5 billion and also posted an operating profit of $452 million for the first time since 2019, as quarantine requirements in Hong Kong were relaxed in the second half of 2022. Cathay attributed the significant loss in 2022 to results from its associates, including Air China, that reflected the continuing impact of the COVID crisis on our Chinese mainland investments, Cathay Chair Patrick Healy told a news conference Wednesday. Netherlands to restrict sales of processor chip tech. The Dutch government announced Wednesday that it plans to impose additional restrictions on the export of machines that make advanced processor chips, joining a U.S. push that aims at limiting China's access to materials used to make such chips. Dutch Minister for Foreign Trade and Development Cooperation, Lisha Scheinemacher, sent a letter to lawmakers outlining the proposed limitations, which come in addition to existing export controls on semiconductor technology. Prime Minister Mark Rutte visited U.S. President Joe Biden in January for talks on advanced chip machines made by Dutch company ASML and other topics. Today's obituaries and death notices. Herman Betty M., age 87, Fort Collins, March 2nd, Allnut Drake Chapel. Sturmitz, Daniel Robert, age 58, Fort Collins, March 5th, Bolender Funeral Chapel. Thank you for joining us for the Thursday edition of the Fort Collins Coloradoan. My name is Gary Playtech. AINC programming is brought to you in part by the DAV Charitable Trust. Empowering veterans to live high-quality lives with respect and dignity. AINC presents your low vision resource of the day, Benefits in Action. This organization provides assistance in understanding, accessing, and utilizing healthcare resources. Learn more by visiting www.benefitsinaction.org. That's B E N E F I T S I N A C T I O N or calling 720-221-8354, or emailing info at benefitsinaction.org. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777. You're listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado.